Open up to Matthew chapter 23, and we are continuing in our series through the Gospel of Matthew. Someone said to me a little bit early before the service this morning that they were just super excited waiting to, for chapter 24. Can't wait till we get to chapter 24. I can't wait either, but uh, it's going to be a little while before we get there, so hang on. Actually, uh, maybe the Lord will come before we get there. And then again, maybe not. But we are in chapter 23, and just uh, setting that context for you again, chapter 23 has got to be one of the most difficult chapters in, uh, probably in the New Testament, just in terms of the severity of the language. There's some very, very strong language uh, on the lips of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, spoken to the leadership of the nation of Israel and through them and, and beyond them to the nation itself that had embraced the, uh, the religion of the scribes and the Pharisees. Chapters 21 and 22 in Matthew's Gospel occupy Monday and Tuesday of Passion Week. And during uh, that particular time, of course, Jesus was assaulted verbally, spiritually, over and over again by the scribes, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees, each one sending representative groups trying to trip up the Savior to catch him in some, some uh, ill-advised statement with which they could accuse him either to be a blasphemer or they could accuse him of sedition before the Romans. Whatever it took, it didn't matter to them. They just wanted him out of the way. And over and over again, Jesus bested his enemies in open verbal combat. Having succeeded in that, he turns his attention to them to pronounce these woes upon them and their hypocritical teaching and of course as we say through them to the people who have followed them verses 13 through 33 is a section that we're going to begin to look at this morning here and in that section there are eight woes according to the new american standard bible we'll work this out a little bit next week uh, other versions only record seven, and I'll explain the difference to you when we get there. So seven or eight woes, I'm taking a position here at the moment of eight woes, and together, be it seven or eight, that's not the biggest importance at the moment, but it, it uh, together, these woes represent a very comprehensive indictment of the religious system of the scribes and the Pharisees which dominated first century rabbinical Judaism. This was the religion of the ancient people of God embodied in the very woes that Jesus pronounces. And it is, it is most embodied, of course, in the leadership, the scribes and the Pharisees. They are false shepherds, the false shepherds of Israel in the line of those called out by the prophet Ezekiel many centuries earlier in Ezekiel 34 and verses 1 through 12. These false shepherds had substituted for the true religion and that which God had given through Moses. They had substituted a false and a man-made religion, a religion that was ultimately fleecing the sheep of God and leaving them without a shepherd. Jesus indicts the shepherds of Israel, specifically, as I say, in eight ways here in verses 13 through 33. And let me just kind of work through this quickly with you so you get an idea of where we're going over the next 
few weeks. His first indictment is here in verse 13, which we will deal with this morning. And his indictment is that they close the kingdom. They are closing the kingdom of God. Verse 13. Verse 14, that they are preying on the vulnerable. Verse 14. Verse 15, they are indoctrinating in error. Indoctrinating in error. Verses 16 through 22, they are encouraging prevarication. They are encouraging prevarication. If that's a new word for you, you've got several weeks to look it up and uh, become familiar with it. They are encouraging prevarication. Verses 16 through 22. Verses 23 and 24, they are majoring on the minors. Majoring on the minors. Verses 25 to 26, practicing externalism. Practicing externalism, verses 27 and 28, ignoring inner purity, ignoring inner purity, and verses 29 to 33, persecuting God's spokesman. That is a very comprehensive indictment of the leadership of the nation. And by these judgments, Jesus reveals the, the manifest wickedness of their man-made religion. So I want to begin this morning, and I want to explore these eight indictments. And the first one we'll look at is closing the kingdom in verse 13. And I want to explore it through a series of three questions. Three questions, the answers to which highlight the power of false shepherds to do considerable damage to the flock of God. So our approach is going to be to ask and answer these questions. And as we unfold this together, we will see that there is tremendous power that lies with the false shepherds of Israel. And as I would say by extension, any false shepherd to do considerable damage to the people of God. That is why the New Testament warns so often about the false shepherd. So here we go from a verse or question number one. Simply this, how did the scribes and Pharisees close off the kingdom to Israel? Verse 13, but woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from people. For you do not enter in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from Israel people. Woe to you, he says. The word woe can be a word expressing compassion. For example, in chapter 24 and verse 19, Jesus uses the word there. He says, but woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babes in those days, speaking about the times of the great tribulation. So it's a word, it can be a word expressing compassion. Woe to you who are in this difficult place. It can also be a word of very strong condemnation. Uh, Matthew chapter 11, verse 21, where Jesus speaks a woe there of condemnation. He says, woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida. If the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. So it can be a very strong condemnation. And it can also be a combination of both uh, condemnation and compassion. And I think that's exactly what it is here in chapter 23. 
Jesus is, is um, embodying here in 23 the role of the Old Testament prophet. He is, he is acting out, as it were, the, the, the role of the Old Testament prophet, and he is calling out the sin of the nation. And he is pronouncing judgment upon them because of their sin. He is, he is vocalizing the judgment of God. He is angry here. In Ephesians, Paul says, you know, be angry, yet do not sin, right? This is an illustration of a righteous indignation, a righteous anger. Jesus is legitimately angry here. And he is angry about the sin of his people. But he, that anger is also tempered at the same time with a grief, with a grief. And, and, and it's the grief that he, he feels for his people because he knows the horrible price they are going to pay for their sin. I mean, look at verse 37 in chapter 23. You, you get a sense of it where he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were unwilling. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. So they are words of judgment. They are words of condemnation. They are words, uh, angry words, yet they are grief-filled words. Jesus does not delight in the judgment that he is announcing upon his nation, his people. You can kind of get an idea of it, and I won't turn you there, but Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 23, where it's the prophet there says, God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they would turn from their ways and live. God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. And I would say here in chapter 23, of Matthew's gospel, that Jesus takes no pleasure in announcing the judgment upon his enemies and upon his nation. Now, structurally, uh, these woes are, are, are set up in a way that the woe is announced first, and then it is followed with the reason, the reason for the woe, and the reason includes an example of the various transgressions. So as we go through it together and we look at all eight of them, we are going to get a, a very clear idea of what it was like to live in those days under that religious system. Now notice what he says here. They, they shut off the kingdom of heaven. They shut off the kingdom of heaven. That's a strong word. Strong statement. It's the idea of slamming the door. You could, you could idiomatically translate it that way. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you slam the door in the face of the people. You did not go in yourself, and you are not allowing them to go in either. You slam the door in their face. Those who are looking to you, leaders, for spiritual guidance, you are, you are slamming the door to heaven in their face. You are turning them away from the truth. How? How did they slam the door of heaven? Well, they did it really in a twofold way. In a twofold way. First, by rejecting Jesus' claim 
to be the narrow gate through whom entrance to the kingdom was granted. They rejected Jesus and his claims. So you can see it in Matthew 27. If you haven't figured it out yet, we're going to be flipping around a lot here. So Matthew 27, uh, uh, 27, I'm sorry, uh, chapter 7, not 27, Matthew 7, the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7, verses 13 and 14. Where Jesus says, enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. Jesus claims to be that narrow gate, and the scribes and the Pharisees have rejected him and his claim. Beyond rejecting him, they resist him. They resist him, and they resist his ministry among the people. They are actively, and have been for quite some time now, actively seeking to dissuade the masses who are following Christ. So wherever Jesus goes, it's almost inevitable there will be a scribe or a Pharisee or, or delegation from the leadership of the nation who will be tracking him around and seeking to undo whatever he's done, seeking to explain whatever he has done in a way that would turn the people away from him, seeking to trip him up somehow. You can almost uh, think like the Apostle Paul as he, as he moved around the, the, the world in the first century planting churches. There were these false teachers that followed him and, and he would no sooner leave a place and, and a church would be planted there and the false teachers would swoop in and would seek to turn the church away from the truth of the gospel and away from the Apostle Paul. The same basic idea here. So they are seeking to, to, they shut the the kingdom themselves and they seek to shut it to others. And how do they do it? They do it by rejecting Christ and resisting the message and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. So question, second question, how did they resist Jesus? How did they resist Jesus? They rejected him themselves, and they resisted his ministry. How? How did they resist his ministry? And it's instructive as we take the time to look at this, because these are often the ways that false shepherds, false teachers, go about resisting the ministry, resisting the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's some commonalities even in our own day. So how did they resist Jesus? Answer, by blunting Jesus' message and his miracles. By blunting his message and his miracles by inserting false teaching and character assassination. By inserting false teaching and character assassinations. They sought to blunt the message and the miracles. Matthew 16, Jesus himself calls it the leaven of the scribes and the Pharisees. Take a look at that. 16, verses 11 and 12. This is where Jesus uh, warns them. Actually, in verse 6 of chapter 16, Jesus says to his disciples, watch out and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And, of course, his disciples think he's talking about bread, and he is so uh, disappointed in them at that point in time. But... But anyway, in verse 11, he, he says, How is it that you do not understand that I did not speak to you concerning bread, 
But beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Verse 12. Then they understood that he did not say to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Beware of their teaching. It is a leavening agent. Meaning that it, that it starts out small and somewhat invisible, but over time it grows until it overwhelms the entire dough. It leavens the bread. That's what their false teaching is going to do. That is how they are blunting his message and his miracles. So, illustrations. What do you do about miracles? I mean, Jesus is doing miracles. He, uh, during his Galilean ministry, about 18 months, he is doing miracles all over the place. He is healing people, everyone who comes to him, without, virtually without exception. He is healing them. And it says that people are coming from all over, including from the Decapolis, from the, from the east side of the Jordan River. They are flooding into the land to be healed by this miracle worker. So you obviously cannot deny that miracles are being done. So what do you do? Well, their strategy is to deflect the obvious uh, authenticity of the miracles by attributing them not to the power of God, but to the power of Satan. You see how they do that? It's, a, it's a, almost a subtle uh, twist to it. Chapter 12. Chapter 12. Verses 22 through 24. Then a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus, and he healed him so that the mute man spoke and saw. All the crowds were amazed and were saying, This man cannot be the son of David, can he? But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, This man casts out demons only by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. You notice they don't try to dispute the reality of what has happened. This man was blind. This man could not speak. This man was demon-possessed. He is now able to see. He's able to speak. He is, he is no longer possessed by the demon. And so they cannot deny the miracle, but instead they attribute the power of the miracle not to the Spirit of God, but to Satan himself. You can see it in John's gospel. John chapter 8 and verse 48. John eight forty-eight, And a confrontation there. The Jews answered and said to Jesus, Do we not rightly say that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Chapter 9, verse 29. We know, that this, we know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he is from. We do not know where he is from. Chapter 10 of John's Gospel, verses 19 and following. A division occurred again among the Jews because of these words. Many of them were saying, he has a demon and is insane. Why do you listen to him? Others were saying, these are not the sayings of one demon possessed. A demon cannot open the eyes of the blind, can he? So the leaven is having its effect. Don't deny the miracle. It's too obvious. Instead, go after the source, the power source of the miracle. Now, the strategy here is, is a recurring strategy, as, I, as I've shown you here. It's, it appears in many, many places. It's also a strategy that they had used with John the Baptist to a great, a great deal of success. So they tried it out on John the Baptist in resisting his ministry. It had been successful there, and so they used it to resist the ministry of Christ, the miracles of Christ. John, Mark 11, verse 18, shows us it was a strategy that they had honed 
with John the Baptist. Speaking of him, it says, For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, John what? Has a demon. John has a demon. Well, if the forerunner has a demon, then it would follow in their twisted logic that, the, that uh, Christ himself would have a demon. So the, that's their first strategy. What they're basically saying is, I cannot deny what he has done, but we're going to tell you it's not of God. It's not of God. He is powered by the evil one himself. He is the representation of the king of darkness in this world. So they undermine him. Interestingly, uh, they tell us that following the resurrection, this did not go away and has actually continued in certain segments of Judaism even to this day. The rabbis, the ancient rabbis, they taught that while Jesus was in Egypt, so they sort of take that gospel truth that talks about Jesus going to Egypt, right? Well, well uh, Herod is king. And they say while down in Egypt, he was instructed in, in the art of sorcery and magic by the magicians of Egypt. And so later when he came back into Israel, he deceived the people by performing different uh, magic uh, tricks. So he, he, was, he learned all of that while he was in Egypt. So the same basic rejection continues even to, the, to this day. We won't deny the miracle. We'll just tell you it's of the devil. It's of the devil. So they deflect the obviousness of the miracle. Beyond that, they accuse him of blasphemy. They accuse Jesus of blasphemy. Chapter 9 of Matthew's gospel. Getting into a boat, Jesus crossed over the sea, came to his own city, and they brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed, and seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralytic, Take courage, son, your sins are forgiven. And some of the scribes said to themselves, This fellow blasphemes. And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why are you thinking evil in your heart? So they accuse him of a blasphemy. John chapter 10. Another illustration. John 10, verse 33. The Jews answer Christ, for a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. Because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. They understood his claim to be the Son of God. They understood his claim to be one with the Father. And what they said is that is a blasphemous claim for a man to make. It is an attempt to entice the nation to lead them away from the one true God into apostasy and idolatry. And so you are a blasphemer. You are a blasphemer. Now, beloved, it's probably worth saying right at this point here that the, the, the fact that his original 12 disciples were Orthodox Jewish men, and if they knew anything, they knew that God is, is, uh, is one, right? The monotheism of the ancient uh, Israeli, uh, the faith of Israel. Yet they, they walked with him, they ministered with him, they ate with him, they slept next to him. And at the end of their three years together, they conclude he is both man and he is God. He is both man and he is God. And that would be a very, very difficult thing to come to as a monotheistic Jew. And so the, I would say the greatest uh, demonstration of proof of the deity of Jesus Christ comes in the fact that those who were his eyewitnesses came to that very conclusion themselves. But among the people, they were continually seeking to undermine, that is his opponents were continually seeking to undermine him by accusing him of blasphemy. Beyond that, they attacked his morals. 
They attacked his morals. Matthew chapter 11, verse 19. Son of man came eating and drinking, and they say, Behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. So they attack his morals. They say, how can he be of God when all he does is hang around with people who are so obviously sinners? So obviously sinners. They accuse him of being against the law of Moses. To be against the law of Moses and specifically to be a Sabbath violator. To be a breaker of Sabbaths and not a Sabbath keeper. Matthew chapter 12 again and is verses 1 through 14. I'm not going to read the whole passage for you, but it's there that he and his disciples, right? They're hungry, and so they pick some grain and, and uh, eat it and so forth, and they're being accused of violating the Sabbath, of being Sabbath breakers. Luke chapter 13. Luke chapter 13. Verse 10. He was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, and there was a woman who for 18 years had had a sickness caused by a spirit, and she was bent double and could not straighten up. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your sickness. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she began... Uh, She was made erect and began glorifying God. But the synagogue official, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, began saying to the crowd in response, there are six days in which work should be done, so come during them and get healed, but not on the Sabbath. Not on the Sabbath. And if Jesus answered him and said, You hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the stall and lead him away to water him? And this woman, a daughter of Abraham as she is, whom Satan has bound for 18 long years... Should she not have been released from this bond on the Sabbath day? And he said this, and all his opponents being humiliated, the entire crowd was rejoicing over all the glorious things being done by him. They, can, they accuse him of being a Sabbath breaker, a Sabbath breaker. And the Sabbath, of course, is one of the Ten Commandments of God. It, it is enshrined there on the stone tablets. And so if you are a Sabbath breaker, you are obviously not one with the ancient faith of our people. You are in opposition to our people. In fact, I would suggest to you, and back to Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 to 19... Where Jesus says, do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest stroke, letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. The charge that they would lay at him is he is one who is annulling the law of Moses. And our first and best illustration of that is he is a Sabbath violator. He does not keep the Sabbath. Of course, he does keep the Sabbath. He is Lord of the Sabbath. He just doesn't keep the Sabbath the way they have taught the people that it must be kept. Finally, they resist him. By appealing to the hypocrisy that lies hidden in each and every human heart. In fact, it's interesting. In Luke chapter 12 and verse 1, Jesus there says, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. And he defines it there as, Which is hypocrisy? 
the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. So they appeal to the fact that an external religion that's been erected by the leadership of Israel is a religion that's necessarily built on hypocrisy. The notion that you can say one thing and do another. You can say one that we need to live one way, but you can live a different way. Indeed, we could say of the nation at large, as the prophet Jeremiah says in chapter 2 and verse 13, My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, to hew for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. They rejected Christ and created their own substitute. Their own substitute. So that's how they resisted him. The third question to take a look at quickly this morning is why did they resist him? We know that they did. We know how that they did. The question is why? Why did the nation embodied in its leadership reject their Messiah? Why? The answer to it is is this. They rejected Jesus because Jesus rejected the system that they had erected. Jesus rejected both their version of the kingdom of God as well as the oral tradition that controlled access into that kingdom. They had created their own view, their own version of the kingdom of God. And they had, they had layered it with their own oral tradition and because they were the ones who erected the oral condition, uh, tradition, they, in effect, were the gatekeepers to this kingdom of God. And Jesus came to shatter it. He came to shatter the whole thing, to turn the world right side up, to turn the world right side up. So let's just look quickly here, from just to, shortly here, at the, at the differences between these two kingdoms. The kingdom they had erected, and the kingdom, the true kingdom of God that Jesus came to present. Their kingdom, Paul tells us, is entered through self-effort. Romans chapter 10 and verse 3. Romans 10, 3. Their kingdom is entered through self-effort. Paul says about his people, he says, not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own. They did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. Their kingdom was entered through self-effort. Jesus says that the righteousness necessary to enter his kingdom will never, pardon me, Jesus says to enter his kingdom, you have to be born again. Their kingdom is entered through self-effort. Jesus says that, that the true kingdom, his kingdom, is only entered by being born again. John chapter 3, right? You must be what? Born again. You must be born again. The problem is that that's not an, that is not a command that you can obey. It's not phrased as a command. Actually, it's a statement of reality. In order to enter the kingdom... You cannot get there by your own self-righteousness. You cannot do enough good. You cannot erect a system that will enable you to come into the presence of your creator. You must be born again, but you cannot do that. 
It lies outside of you. It's a human impossibility. And you can see how that puts you, that reality puts one on a collision course with all those who are teaching that you can work your way into the presence of God. Enter the kingdom, Jesus says, is impossible. Impossible. Unless God acts on your behalf. Their kingdom is steeped in hypocrisy. Matthew chapter 15, verses 7 and following. Jesus says, you hypocrites, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. Their kingdom is a kingdom steeped in hypocrisy. Jesus says that the righteousness necessary to enter his kingdom can never come through human effort, right? It'll never be the product of their hypocritical system. In fact, in chapter 5 of Matthew's gospel, in verse 20, he said, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of God. Third, their kingdom dealt with externals. Same chapter, verses 11 and 12. It's not what enters into the mouth that defiles the man, but what proceeds out of the mouth. This defiles the man. Then the Pharisees, or the disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this statement? Of course they were offended. Because what they taught is that one enters the kingdom of God through the keeping of external laws. And they had, a, and they had as I told you yes, last week, they had a 22-volume set of the laws that one needed to keep. So they were all about these externals. Jesus' kingdom, he says, conversely, concerns matters of the heart. Verse 18, same chapter. But the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart. And those defile the man. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders. These are the things which defile the man. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile the man. Again, you see the difference. An external kingdom dealt with external matters can be managed and manipulated by human effort. A kingdom that concerns internal matters it lies beyond the reach of the human hand. I cannot reach into your heart. You cannot reach into mine. And the truth of the matter is I can't reach into my own heart and you cannot reach into yours. So their, their kingdoms are on a collision course. Beyond that, their kingdom placed them as the gatekeepers. Placed them as the gatekeepers. John chapter 11 and verse 47. This is right after Jesus has raised Lazarus. Again, another miracle that's undeniable. Therefore, the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council and were saying, What are we doing? For this man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. If we let this continue, we are going to lose everything we've got. It's all going to be stripped away from us. We are the gatekeepers of the kingdom of God. We control the temple franchise. We control the system of righteousness necessary to enter into the kingdom of God. As we have defined it, every time we make a new law, we get to add it on. And Jesus is going to destroy it all. He's going to tear it all away. Why? 
Because he declares that it is his teaching that is the foundation of the kingdom. He is declaring that it is his lordship is the means of entrance into that kingdom. Back to Matthew chapter 7. Verses 13 and 14, right? Where Jesus says at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Enter through the narrow gate. For the gate is wide, and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through it. That's the kingdom of the Pharisees. For the gate is small, and the way is narrow that leads to life. And there are few who find it. Now let your eyes drop down to verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord. He is saying to them, listen, entrance into the kingdom of heaven is controlled by me. They will come and say to me, Lord, Lord. So you have this direct contrast between the external religion of the scribes and the Pharisees that they had constructed and they controlled. And Jesus says the entrance of the kingdom of heaven lies upon me and my teaching. I'm the gateway. Beyond that, their kingdom was a kingdom that was harsh and compassionless. Chapter 9 of Matthew's Gospel. Verse 13, Jesus says, Go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Their kingdom of externals was a kingdom that was harsh. It was a kingdom that lacked compassion. Jesus' kingdom is a kingdom that is a kingdom that that loves uh, the truth, and, and uh, it is a kingdom in which uh, he is very compassionate. So chapter 11, where he says, Come to me, verse 28, all who are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. Take my yoke on you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. It's a kingdom where we rest from the futility of self-effort as opposed to a kingdom that continues to lay burdens, harsh and compassionless burdens upon us. Their kingdom was a kingdom for people who loved their sin. Jesus is a kingdom for those who love and practice the truth. John chapter 3. In verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. This is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. It is a kingdom for those who love their sin and can have the illusion of righteousness through an external hypocritical religious system. But, verse 21, he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifest as having been wrought in God. The kingdom that Jesus is presenting is a kingdom for those who know and love the truth. Finally, their kingdom is a kingdom populated by spiritually blind people, unable to see the truth. Spiritually blind people, unable to see the truth. They are the walking dead. Second Corinthians chapter 4, 
and verse 4. Paul says, The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Verse 15, chapter 3. But to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. Their kingdom is a kingdom populated by those who are spiritually dead, spiritually blind. Jesus' kingdom is populated by those whose eyes have been opened by the Spirit of God. Chapter 4 and verse 6. For God who said light shall shine out of darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Beloved, why did they resist Jesus? It's because everything about him, everything about him was in sharp contrast to them and their system. They were enslaved to their own sin, and they had enslaved the nation as well. Jesus came to set them free. And whenever the gospel comes to set people free, you can be absolutely assured that it will be resisted, violently resisted, by the kingdom of darkness. The fact that you're here this morning... And you know the truth, and your eyes have been opened, and you recognize the glory of God in the face of Christ, and your heart is filled with love for the Savior, and you've been delivered from the penalty and power of sin. It is not because of anything that we have done. It is not because of any righteousness on our own. We have been born again. We have been born from above. Because God in his mercy and his grace has acted upon our hearts. And that is worth our worship. Let's pray. Father, we are a redeemed people. And we are redeemed because of what you have done for us and in us through the Lord Jesus Christ. Our Father, we confess and can readily acknowledge as we remember to our own situation before the light of Christ had shown in our hearts how enslaved we were to the kingdom of darkness. How much we loved our own sin. How committed we were to our own self-righteousness. How pleased we were with the thought that we could earn your favor. And how opposed we were to the gospel of Jesus Christ. But Father, you acted in us. By your spirit and through your word. The veil has been lifted. We have come to see the truth. We are your people now. And we are forever grateful. Forever indebted. We seek not to pay you, repay you, our Father. We seek merely to proclaim the glories of your name and to worship you as you rightfully deserve. We pray, O oh Lord, for those even here this morning who are still part of the kingdom of darkness, 
who are still enslaved in their sin. We ask you to do for them what you have done for us. Open their eyes to the truth, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.